Okay, today's podcast is going to be pretty gruesome, creepy, gross, and all of the above. Fair warning, if uh, you don't like listening to cases that have necrophilia, sexual activity, and brutal murder, this one is not for you. Um, today's podcast is about the one and only Adam and Kemper. Now, he is definitely one of the more complex serial killers out there. Through interviews and a story, like you just realize how manipulative and smart he was. Um, it's crazy because he's actually liked by his prison guards, and they've said he's a model inmate. Which how bizarre is that, considering his bizarre crimes? Um, to this day, he is still alive in a California medical facility. Which what? When I first heard his crimes, and then how he was still alive, it just blew my mind, I just, I thought this happened decades ago, but, of course, I mean, he will remain locked away in a California medical facility, but, yeah, um, let's just get right into it, okay, so, his full name is Edmund Kemper III, and he was born in Burbank, California, he is a middle child, but the only son. Um, his mother's name was Carnell Elizabeth Kemper. His dad's name was Edmund Kemper II. Now, from what I could read, you could understand that they had a very complex relationship. Edmund's parents did. Um, so let's talk about the parents because their relationship was just intense. So... The dad was a World War II veteran, and after the World War, he was uh, helping the government mess with some nuclear stuff, like nuclear weapons testing, and I don't know, I guess it became like a stressful job to him, and he decided to move to California and become an electrician. Um, when his wife found out that he was quitting his job as a um, like, nuclear bomb tester for the government, she just became, like, disgusted, like, ugh, what? An electrician? Like, that's not good enough. Like, I can't go around telling people my husband puts light bulbs in people's houses. Like, in her mind, <laughs> this was so basic and not something to be proud of. Um, I mean, it is speculated that the people who studied the psychology of Ms. Carnell, they just believed she had borderline personality disorder. The husband, Edmund, um, he would even say that living with her was worse than going out on a suicide mission in the war. And I mean, he he was definitely not saying this in like, oh, like, my wife's just a little crazy, you know, uh, whatever. It's more of like, I do not like this woman anymore. And Ed's dad would even say that living with Carnell was worse than being in the trenches for 396 days in World War II. I mean, like, these are some powerful words, and it just, it can just give you, like, a hint of how evil Carnell really was. Now, um, she gave birth to three children. Um, she had a daughter, a son, which is going to be Edmund, and another daughter. Okay, so, Edmund, or, we'll just call him Ed for now, um, Ed for short, he was born... And he was a big baby. He was a very big baby. Now, he was born on December 18th 
1948 in Burbank, California. And he was a whopping 13-pound baby. I mean, he ends up growing up to be almost 7 feet. And he was definitely a giant. And, I mean, as a baby, Carnell wouldn't be nice to him, even though he was a baby, you know, like she wouldn't want to give her son affection ever because she just thought that he would turn him gay, which what? And I'm sure you've read like studies that have shown that a baby needs a mother's love or just love in general. And that definitely was not given to him. I mean, despite all of this, he still grew up to be very intelligent and had an IQ of 145. Um, And this, I mean, this helped him be considered one of the smarter serial killers out there. Now, growing up, he did have some near-death experiences. Um, There was this one time, like, he was at the train station with his sister, um, his older sister, Susan. Now, she she was a little sus. I don't know. She was kind of weird. But she actually pushed him in front of a moving train, and he almost, like, he nearly almost fell into the train tracks and got, I don't know, ran over and, you know, it was, I think it was just inconclusive, like, they didn't figure out if she was playing around or what she was doing, but there was also this other time where she pushed him in a pool and he didn't know how to swim and he, he almost drowned until someone saved him and, I mean, he's, he was a big guy, so, it was kind of hard to take him out, but yeah, like he he always surrounded himself with the idea of death after that. Like he even started playing like games about death and killing and stuff like that. So now I'm just gonna go into his like psychotic behavior. Um, at eight years old, he would get his sister's dolls and he would remove their hands and their heads and he would come up with all these different methods of taking their heads off and he would warm up a knife and slowly cut their heads off and he would do whatever he could to these dolls uh at this age I mean his parents just ignored it they just thought it was like oh whatever like it's just normal boy behavior you know but now he's approaching second grade, and um, he actually started stalking his second grade teacher, and he followed her home once, and I think he was, like, holding a knife, and I mean, that's definitely weird. I mean, what, at nine years old, I think, right? Like, what? He <laughs> um, was definitely a peeping Tom, a weirdo. He was already being creepy, and I mean, the parents, they didn't say anything. Like, they... I think his sisters told their parents and the parents just didn't do anything about it. And I think Susan, his sister, I mean, she was also young with him, but she teased him and she would say like, well, why don't you just go kiss her then? And um, he said, and I quote, if I kiss her, I would have to kill her first. And you, you know, that's just not something that a kid says. I mean, Susan, like, no red flags were up on her because she's just like, whatever. Like, you know, I guess it was normal to talk to her. But, you know, like, he just had such an obsession with dead people. And um, I don't know. I, I think, like, the first thing he started killing was 
when he was 10, he actually killed his family cat. Um, so I think he suffocated his cat. Well, he actually buried it alive first. And then when he was sure it was dead, he dug it up and then he cut off its head. And then he mounted it on a spike. And his parents saw that and they were like, what the, what is wrong with you? Like, you know, um, and they didn't get another pet until when he was like maybe 13, I think is what I read. And um, he did it all over again. And, you know, he, he didn't like this cat at all from the beginning because he just thought that this cat liked his sister better. So immediately he grabbed a knife and just decapitated this cat. So, I mean, it's fair to say like, the parents didn't get and another pet ever again after that. Um, but it's crazy that the parents saw this and they wouldn't do anything about it. I mean, the mother, the mother especially, she was just like, ew, like, what the, what's wrong with you, you know? Like, she just didn't take, like, any red flags or decide to give him any help. And, you know, he would never get this help, especially because his parents get divorced, like, they end up getting divorced, and so now Ed's dad just straight up leaves, and he's he's just done. He's just done with um like Ed's mom's shit, like no more. And so he moves out, and he just leaves um Ed's mom and his two sisters, and so they just decided to move to Montana. And I mean Montana, it was not fun for him. Um, he was definitely very sad, um, and he would get bullied a lot because of his height. I mean, I think I mentioned like he was very tall, very, very tall. And, you know, he, the bullying would not stop. Like, um, Ed's mom would make him sleep in the basement eventually because she feared that he was going to rape like his sisters, but I mean, that claim is very inconclusive. Uh, I don't think it was true. Um, Ed said it wasn't true. I mean, he's the one that mentioned that his mom said that, but she would just continuously take, like, take out all of her anger on Ed, and Ed was fed up, and eventually he got in contact with his father, and he ended up going back to California to meet his dad. But when he met up with his dad, he found out he had a new wife and he had a stepson. And when he lived in their house for a few weeks, he just felt like he was intruding, like, you know. And then Ed's new wife started saying stuff about Ed and saying, like, I just don't feel comfortable with him. Like, he's just too stressful. Like, you need to get rid of him. He needs to move. And, you know, like Ed's dad was like, "Okay, yeah, I'll get rid of him. And so Ed just, you know, felt rejected by his dad. I mean, this is, this, this was definitely like the third or fourth time he has been rejected. I mean, the first time was by his mom. His entire life he had been rejected. The second time was when his dad left his mom and his sisters. He felt like he was alone because I guess his dad was the closest thing to a friend he had. And the third time was when his dad pretty much told him he had to leave. And so where the dad takes him is to his parents' house. And this is in Norfolk, California. And um, Ed said he hated it. 
He absolutely hated it. And he said he despised his grandma. He said it reminded him of his mom. Mind you, obviously, this is his dad's mom. But he just said that she would constantly degrade him and emasculate him. And, you know, um, his grandpa, though, was nicer. I think he had, like, dementia. So he... He was kind of out of it a lot, in and out a lot, so he didn't really mind him as much. I know, like, the grandpa actually ended up giving him a shotgun because he liked to kill animals. Since they lived out in the farm or whatever, um, the grandpa just thought it was okay for him to kill all these animals because they were messing with their, like, crops and stuff anyways. And the grandma hated this. Like, she, she was like why are you killing these animals, like, you're not even doing it right, like, it's not supposed to be torturous, like, you know, and so, one day, I think, Ed and his grandma get into a big argument, Ed was 15, I believe, yes, he was 15 when he got into an argument with his grandma, and he just became so enraged that he went into the living room, he grabbed a shotgun, and he shot his grandma, So she was shot once in the head and then twice in the back. And actually, when they did the autopsy on um, his grandma, uh, they found post-mortem stab wounds, meaning he went back and grabbed a kitchen knife and just continuously stabbed his grandma, even though she was dead. And it just shows just how angry he actually was, you know? And, I mean... At this time, the grandpa wasn't even home yet. He was actually coming home. And once Ed heard that the grandpa came home, he, like, ran to the living room, grabbed that same rifle, and went outside and shot his grandpa. Like, he just killed him. And um, after all of this, he he decided he called, like, he decided he was going to call his mom. And he said, so I just killed my grandparents, so what do I do, and she was like, well, um, call the cops, or else I'm gonna call the cops, and, you know, he's like, okay, I'll call the cops, so he calls the police department, and he tells them, like, hey, like, I just killed my grandparents, whatever, whatever, the police show up, and they looked at the crime scene, they were like, what in the, you know, like, And it was crazy. He was just there waiting patiently for them. Like, he wasn't trying to run or anything. And they asked him, like, why did you do it? And, you know, like, I in trial, and I quote, he said, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. Like, what? (laughs) It's so crazy to me. Like, wow, you know? And in, in trial, like, a psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, but that wasn't really his real diagnosis. They they just really wanted to diagnose him with something because they just could not believe that this 15-year-old was actually sane and just could actually kill someone in cold blood. And so he was sent into a maximum security mental hospital where um, they like evaluated him and they evaluated they evaluated him for something like less severe than um the paranoid schizophrenia but 
you know, like, because it was less than that, I think he, he eventually got more privileges than the rest of the people there. Not, not only that, but, um, the people in the mental hospital, like the doctors and stuff would say that he was such a model inmate and he eventually got the opportunity to like administer the tests to other patients that determined whether they're crazy or not. So, I mean, Ed was like learning how the mental hospital was working. And so he was just looking at these papers and he was like, oh, so like if I answer that way, then they're going to think I am okay and this and that. So he just started taking like mental, like just mental notes of this stuff and being prepared and knowing how to answer all of these questions. I mean, he, he was very manipulative. So eventually, like after six years, I believe, yeah, age 21, he was released um, on parole. Um, and the authorities agreed to release him back to his mom. But, I mean, the doctors advised not to just because the mom was just an extension of the grandma that he killed. You know, like, it, it was all that built-up anger meant for the mom, but he took it out on the grandma. But the authorities said just, you know, whatever, nah, it'll be fine. So, yeah, he got released to his mom. So for the next, like, three years, he would go back for, like, psychiatric evaluations. And they would make sure he's okay. And obviously, he knew how to answer all this stuff. And then after those three years, he actually asked for his juvenile records to get expunged. Which means, like, he just completely wanted, like, those records sealed tight, like a police officer could pull him over and they would not be able to see that he killed his parents. And actually he had a site, like a psychiatrist write to the judge that if he were to see him without knowing his previous history, he would say that he was a very intelligent man, well adjusted to society and he posed no risk. And, um, he said that he considered it very reasonable to expunge his record so he could just move forward with his life. Well, after this whole ordeal and him getting released, he was just wondering, like, well, like, what can I do with my life, you know? And um, he decided he would apply to be a police officer. He really wanted to be a part of the police department. So he applied, but he ended up getting rejected because they had a height requirement and he was too tall to be a police officer. And, I mean, I'd... I don't know, like, what his height had to do with being a police officer or why they have, like, certain height requirements. Like, I don't know, maybe they just don't fit in the cop car or something, but I don't know. But it's a good thing he wasn't able to be a part of the police. Uh, but despite him not being able to get in, he was still able to make friends with, like, a lot of police, like, police officers he actually, like, would go to this place called the Cherry Room, which was known to be, like, a local police hangout. And he would just hang out with a whole bunch of police officers, and they would all call him Big Ed, and they would always describe him as being, like, friendly. Um, so, at the time, he was still living with his mother, and um, he wanted to move out. So, he he did move out. He had a job, but he kept losing the job or he would lose the apartment like he would fall behind in payments so he would kept 
going back to his mother's house. It was just a back and forth situation. And then one day he was able to get like a motorcycle. And then um, I think a few months later, he was actually hit by a car and he got really badly injured like on one of his arms. And he ended up suing. So he ended up getting about like $90,000, which he got pretty okay money for that. So with this money, he decided, okay, like, I'm finally going to get a car, you know, and he was excited, like, he hadn't had a car, and he saw this as an opportunity, you know, and um, he was just ready, and so once he got his car, like, and he was driving around, like, down the highway, he noticed, like, there was an increased amount of, like, young female hitchhikers, and, like, in his mind, something clicked, he's just, like, it's perfect and so he just started like planning things out and he started preparing because he said he in his mind like he wanted to kill one of these girls and so he started getting plastic bags handcuffs nice blankets and he just stored them all in his car as a precaution so through the time like um he eventually started picking up these female hitchhikers and he would actually give them rides and like I think it was like about 150 of them that he gave transportation to and he didn't harm them or anything but then one day like he said he started feeling zapples it's exactly what he called it zapples and I'm sorry but it it pretty much was that he felt like a sensation in his private area. And he just described it as like a sexual homos- like homicidal urges. And that's when he started his killing. Now, him killing would only last about 11 months. Like his killer spree. Um, and he had the same M.O., throughout his whole victims like all the victims had the same amount like which i'm about to describe um so first he would kill the hitchhiker he would most likely um handcuff them and then he would stab them and take them back home and then once he had them back home he would sever their heads and he would perform oral stimulation (laughs) with their mouths and um yeah, like, they didn't have bodies, and so after he did that, he would proceed to partake in necrophiliac with uh, the headless bodies, and after that, he would just dispose of these bodies, and I think he would actually keep the heads for a little, and he would dispose of the heads later on, Um, but I do know that he would chop up the body in pieces and scatter them everywhere, so they wouldn't be found um la what i know about his two victims well his first two victims were actually marianne pesk i think pesk something like that and then anita lucessa and he said he spotted those girls hitchhiking and they were actually on their way to stanford university or they wanted a ride to stanford university they were just wanting to go out and party have fun and Ed told him that he was willing to take him there and he he said he was familiar with the roads and um 
when the girls weren't paying attention, he decided to reroute the vehicle and he took him into the woods. Once he took him to the woods, he immediately handcuffed them and both the girls started getting really, really scared. And, you know, the weird thing about it is that as he was handcuffing Mary, like he accidentally like touched her breast and he almost felt like embarrassed. It was like, oh, sorry, like I, I didn't mean to do that, you know, and, you know, it 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 goes to show like he has trouble talking to girls like he doesn't know how to socialize with females and i think it just stems from the psychological issues from a kid and his mom like verbally abusing him so much but anyways it was just crazy to me because i mean 15 minutes later he was going to kill these girls so yeah he ends up stabbing them in the car both of them and he throws them in the trunk of the car now, it's crazy because he actually gets pulled over on his way to his apartment with the bodies in the back of the trunk for having a uh, brake light out. Uh, but the police officers didn't investigate like his car or anything. So he just went his merry way home. And um, that's where he performed necrophilia with these bodies. And he would later on dispose of them. Um, I know that Marianne, I believe, is one of the bodies that they found i mean actually they didn't really find her body the only part they found was her head but i i couldn't imagine like the family trauma that their family had to go through especially like you know like uh, police officers having to come to you well they're like well we we found part of your daughter you know Okay, so now we have the third victim, and her name was Eiko Ku. She was 15 years old, and um, she was actually at a bus stop waiting for a bus to get to dance class, but the bus for class wasn't showing up, and she really didn't want to miss dance class, so she decided to hitchhike, and um, Ed ended up picking her up, and so once again, he did the same thing. Um, he actually tried uh, suffocating her first, like choking her, but it didn't work. Obviously, he took her to the woods first before he did that. And um, eventually, he he was able to kill, like he killed her. And um, he put her in the back of the car in the trunk. And then on his way to his apartment, you know, he was thinking like, hmm, you know what would be good? like an ice cold beer so this man literally stopped by a local bar and had some beers throughout this like throughout this time and he like kept going back to his trunk and even like the bartender noted that he kept going back to the back of his trunk but they couldn't see what it was and he just said he was admiring what he had like caught and when i'm saying caught i'm saying this in like disgust because so disgusting but he kept going out and he was so proud like because it was like a big prized fish to him almost um now he does the same thing that he did to the last victims um we see that Aiko's mom actually calls the police and reports her missing and she's putting flowers out and the police at the time like they don't realize that there's a serial killer and like they don't know that Mary and Anita and um echo are all connected so then we go into our fourth victim well technically 
she's our sixth victim if you want to count the grandparents so this this is his sixth per- person um but her name is Cindy Shaw and she was hitchhiking from her college and this time his MO actually changes a little bit she was 18 um so once again he takes her to the wooded area um he actually shoots her and instead of putting her into the car and taking her to his apartment he takes her to his mom's house and um he actually like his mom was going to come home soon so he like put her in the closet and left her there overnight and then the next day when his mom went out to work he took her body out and then he started to just like decapitate her head from her body and um he would actually keep this head for several days uh he actually disposed of the body and um yeah so with the head he actually decided that he was actually going to bury it in the house so um oh this is so gross but he decided he was going to bury it in his front yard like in his mother's garden and he made a hole and he positioned her head to where it was going to face his mother's bedroom and um he said that the reason he did this was because and i quote my mom always wanted people to look up to her yeah and so now he was doing this in a taunting way obviously he was not doing this because he loved his mother of course um it was completely disgusting. But then he had his um, last two victims, which, oh, well, okay, they're not his last two victims. His last two victims are going to be his mother and one of her friends, but there's uh, two more girls, Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu, I think. And um, they actually just needed like a short ride across campus, I think. Uh, I think Allison was kind of hesitant. She didn't really want to get in. But Ro- Rosalind was kind of like, no, come on, like, it'll be okay. Just get in, get in with me. And so finally she agreed and they got on and they met the same fate as the other girls. Um, he decapitated them, the necrophilia thing, discarded their bodies. <sighs> So now we get to his mother. So one day he actually decided like he had perfected like the art of killing people. And he thought like it's like it's time to do this. Like he believed it was time to kill his mother. So he drives to his mother's house and he decides that he was going to wait till she fell asleep. And so once she fell asleep, he grabs a claw hammer and he bludgeons like he bludgeons her in the head. And then he slits her throat. So she is dead. So then, like, as he does this, he's just thinking, like, you know what? Like, I'm going to do what I always do with all the other bodies. He decapitated his mom's head. Oh, I'm so sorry, but this is gross. And then he proceeded to have sex with his mom's head. And then um, he decided, like, after this, he was going to put his mom's head on the living room like on the shelf and then he would proceed to yell at the head for like an hour or so just yelling and telling her like i hate you like you're the reason i'm doing this and 
all of this other stuff and then it just wasn't enough for him so he started using his mother as a dartboard but then that also wasn't enough so he really wanted to beat up his mom and so he was like punching like just the head and like bludgeoning her and then he does something that like is very very symbolic he cuts out her tongue and her vocal box because he said that she always yelled at him and would abuse him verbally so he decided that obviously the tongue and the vocal box that's where the sound comes from so he threw it into the garbage disposal bin and the sink and it turned it on but the vocal cords because they're so like tough like the garbage disposal just spit it back out so um he was just kind of like huh like makes sense you know of course it wouldn't you know but then he like realized like you know I'm probably not going to get away with the murder of my mother. So what can I do to get away with it? So he decided that he was going to call over his mother's friends. Her, yeah, his mother's friend. And her name is Sally Hallett. Sally Hallett. And he told her that he wanted to have dinner with her and his mother, obviously. Um, which was not what was going to happen. And so she came over and... Um, he bludgeoned her and killed her he didn't do any of the decapitating or anything with her um but he did like put his mother's body and her body into a closet and then he left a note saying um that like pretty much uh sorry like i ran out of time i couldn't finish the job just like the other body so you know he eventually started uh driving like trying to get away into Colorado and he's thinking like they're right after me like they're chasing me but nobody was actually chasing him like nobody was behind his back and so he started getting like paranoid and he was listening to the radio and nothing and so eventually I think just like the emotional stress from it all it just took over him and he actually ended up calling the cops and turning himself in and he said like I killed my mother and I killed a friend and their bodies are in the house and blah, blah, blah. And when he called like the local police officers, they just laughed and they're like, haha, whatever, big Ed. And so then he talked to like a higher up and he said, no, like I really did. And so they end up picking him up and they find out that he was not lying at all. Now, his trial was... um all out of whack it was just kind of weird there was um multiple psychologists trying to diagnose him and i don't know um i know big ed requested to die by torture like he was like i request to die by torture and obviously the jury was like um no that no that's not how that works but he was charged for eight consecutive life sentences and he is still serving them in a max security prison and he will remain there and that is the story of edmund kemper thank you for listening